0: morning, everyone. When we talk about and think about the life that we have in Christ, what terms do we tend to think in? I think it's easy for us to think of our lives as different, as as changed, maybe even as as better, maybe as fixed, repaired in some way. But I think it could be a little bit harder for us to think about our life in Christ as new. Over the last couple of weeks, as I've been thinking about this lesson and this idea of a new life that we have in Christ and our own attempts to make our own lives new, I couldn't help but think about a story that some of you may be familiar with. It got a lot of um, press for at least a brief period of time, about, I'd say, a year and a half, not quite two years ago. The story of of this painting, um, it's a fairly, uh, you know, minor work, or at least it was a fairly obscure work, um, called Ecce Homo, um, Behold the Man, in Latin. Um, it was a painting that was done, in, and I'm not going to try and pronounce the town or the church that it was painted in. It's in Spain, and I would horribly butcher the pronunciation, so I just I worked on it. I, I gave up. So, um, but it was a small church in uh, you know a kind of out of the way place in Spain, and uh, back around 1930 or so, um, there was an, an art professor and, and artist. Painter um, who would vacation in this town um, spent a lot of his holidays there and as a as a, a, a gift um, to to the church, he painted directly on the walls. it was a fresco he he painted this painting and you can see it this is you know clearly there's a little bit you can probably tell from there a little bit of deterioration in in the plaster um, over the years uh, but he he painted this directly onto the wall there and it was you know. Like I said, it wasn't a major work by this, you know, great significant artist, but it was appreciated by the people of that town, by that church. Um, But over the years, um, it began to deteriorate more and more. Um, This is a picture of it much more recently as just moisture in the air, you know, the way plaster does it, you know, deteriorates. The paint would fleck off over time. And so... It sat that way for, for quite some time until a, a woman who, I um, believe in her late 70s, early 80s, maybe, um, an artist herself, amateur artist, an admirer of this painting, she decided to take it upon herself to restore this painting. Um, to, to see that she just hated to see the deterioration that had happened there. And so, little by little, mostly, you know, on the early days there that the, the priests that worked in that, in that church had, had seen her working, said that they were mostly working on the tunic area where most of the, the damage had been done. Um, but, little by little over time, people got used to the side of her sitting there working on sort of the periphery of that painting and maybe they just didn't notice when she got a little more ambitious. She went further into the painting to try and restore and repair the rest of it, um, but clearly it was a little bit beyond her ability. This was the final result of her efforts at restoring this painting. Doesn't exactly look like new, does it? (laughs) When it was discovered, what was happening at first, there was this uproar about... You know that this this one had, had taken it upon herself to do something that clearly she was not qualified to restore this painting, and had just probably irrecoverable. Irre- yeah, I'm not going to even try that word again. She she had damaged it beyond repair. My mouth's not working this morning. She had just clearly this is not the way it was supposed to look, and there was this big uproar about it. It was shown you know on various news outlets. It got some international coverage, and in she just she felt so bad about what had happened. Um. Now, there, there's a good side to this story. I don't want to go on without missing it. It, it got so much play and, and so much attention that it actually, this obscure little painting in this out-of-the-way church suddenly became quite a popular tourist attraction. People wanted to go and see it for themselves, so much so that eventually this church put up a little donation box and just, you know, it was requesting just, you know, one euro of, a, of an admission price to, to come and see it. And they were actually able to raise, at least at the time of, of the writing of the article that I was reading, um, something like, over 50,000 euros that they were able to raise for for local charities. And so some good did come out of it. And so that's the nice part of the story. But the really sad part of the story is this. The grandchildren of the original artist um, still lived in that area and really cared about preserving the, the work of, of their grandfather. And little did anyone know, unfortunately, that, that could have done something about this at the time, The granddaughter of the original artist had actually already made a donation to a local cultural institution, cultural preservation society, so that that painting could have been restored properly. That painting, the funds were there. the, The possibility of that painting really being restored, it was there. It was going to happen. But instead, this... Now, it's kind of a funny story, kind of a sad story. But I can't help but wonder if sometimes, in our attempts to remake our own lives, to restore ourselves, God looks at us with more than a little bit of sadness in his heart. He's trying to tell us that he has already provided for real restoration. The price has been paid, it's there. Real restoration, real new life is available. But we have such a tendency to try and restore our own lives in so many different ways. Uh, uh, a new habit, a new job, a new relationship or a deepened relationship. So there's nothing wrong with these things that we try to do to, to add to and, and, and augment and, and, and enhance our lives. There's nothing wrong with those things. But there's no life in them. We get ourselves into a lot of trouble when we start to think that the ways that we might try to restore and refresh and renew our own lives, when we start to confuse those things with real life. Because see, all of those things, they'll also eventually need renewal as well. Because there's no life really in them. Over in John chapter 5, in the passage we read, a couple of verses we read just a few moments ago, verses uh, 24 and 25, when Jesus says, Very truly I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. Very truly I tell you, a time is coming and is now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear... Will live. You see, only Jesus can give real life. Because he is life. I mean, in John, just a few examples, in John 1 4 says that, you know, in him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. And in, in John 11, there, uh, as Jesus has come to Bethany after Lazarus has died, he's talking to Martha, and he says, Jesus says to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answers, I know he'll rise again at the resurrection at the last day. But Jesus says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live, <clears throat> even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. And then in John 14, 6, it also says, Jesus, when he answers him, says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus says, makes it very clear over and over and over again that he has life. He is life. And so, as Jesus was talking here in, in John 5, as he was talking to these, so many of these religious leaders, you see, they thought they had life. They didn't have him, but they thought that they knew what was going on. They thought that they had life. And see, we tend to think of, when we talk about the, the new life that, that God gives us, that Christ gives us, we tend to think of it in, in the, the future tense, We think of life and death in an eternal future rather than in an eternal present. Because see, Jesus seems to make it pretty clear that the believer has eternal life right now. Not he'll have it someday. Not the son or daughter of God will someday inherit eternal life. But that eternal life, real life, can be had now. Now, certainly there is a future tense of what Jesus is saying. And in fact, just a few verses beyond where we read here in John 5, he talks about that as well. He talks about that eternal life or that eternal death that is to come. But that doesn't seem to be what he's talking about here, especially when he says in there in verse 25, truly I tell you a time is coming and how now has come when the dead will hear the voice of the son of God and those who hear will live. It's almost as if he's saying to his audience right there, some of you are dead and you don't even know it. You know, it reminds me of that movie several years back, you know, the, the Sixth Sense, you know, a big spoiler alert, you know, 15-year-old movie, so I don't know if it really counts as a spoiler alert. But, you know, if, if you saw that movie, you know, it's about this little boy who, you know, he, he sees, you know, dead people, and, and there's this child psychologist that's trying to, to, to help him deal with, with what he says that he's seeing. And then, you know, the big twist there at the end of the movie, like I said, spoiler alert, but it's 15 years ago, so it's your own fault uh, if you haven't seen it yet, um, that... The, you know Bruce Willis' character, this, the psychologist, the man that was talking to this boy about these dead people he was seeing, well, he was dead the whole time too. He didn't know it, that he was just another one of these you know, these dead people that he was seeing, not someone who was li- just living his own life. He, he thought he was still alive. And it seems like Jesus is saying the same thing to these people. There are some of you, there are people that I am talking to that are hearing my voice today, that are dead, but when they hear my voice, said so the time has come, it's coming and now has come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Now, you see, I don't want to be in that number that is dead, hears the voice of Jesus, but doesn't listen, that doesn't embrace the life that he has to offer right now. He talks about crossing over from death. To life. There's nothing more dramatic than that. And only Jesus, as we said, can give that life because he is life. But we have this tendency to define our life in other terms. Outside of Jesus. If you were to describe your life to someone else. If you, you know, for some reason had to to write your own, had to write an autobiography had to write the story of what your life is about, had to describe what life is like to someone else. Most of us would probably start with maybe our families, our jobs, the relationships that we have, our our day-to-day activities. And those are certainly important parts of our life. But when we define what life itself is, we might even be tempted to talk about just the biological functions that we have. Our, our breathing, our inhaling and exhaling, the blood pumping through our veins, the, the signals being fired from our brain through our nervous system. and said, well, that's how we know we're alive. The way we might define life from an everyday sense and from a biological sense, that's not really the kind of life that Jesus is talking about. That's not the true life that we need to be more concerned with. Over in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus has something else to say about life. He, starting verse 24, he says to his disciples, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. For wh- whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world, let forfeit their own soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? It's almost as if Jesus is saying here, you know, I know that you're going to define your life in different ways than I do. There are going to be many things that you're going to want to pursue. And you know what? A lot of those are going to be good things. You know, I think right here in this room, we have a room full of some pretty good people. I, I like you guys. We, we do some good things and there are good things in your life. But we can't confuse the good things in our lives for life itself. I I know I've mentioned this before, but but C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, as he's talking about this passage, this idea of losing your life for his sake and finding it. That it's very easy for a good person, especially, to come to Jesus and think, okay, well, there are certain things in my life that are less than good. Come to terms with the fact, that okay, there is sin in my life. There is weakness. There is brokenness. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to come to Jesus and I'm going to take those sinful things. I'm going to take those broken things, those less than perfect things, and I'm going to lay those at the foot of the cross and say, Jesus, take those things from me. Heal me from those things. Restore those things. And then walk, step back and say, oh, but I've got these other things that I'm pretty proud of. I got some things that I'm pretty good at, some gifts that I have, some some ways that I think I have gotten it right. So Jesus, you don't need to concern yourself with those because I'm doing all right in these areas. But in so many ways, when we take the things that we think are good in and of ourselves, and we try and hang on to them tightly and say, oh Jesus, I don't need to give those to you because those are doing okay on their own. I can't help but think that Jesus is saying, no, 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 I need all of you. Because no matter how good you may be, that life that you have, no matter how many good things you may add into your life, if you try and save those, if you try and tightly grip onto those things, they're just going to slip through your fingers. You're going to lose everything you have because there's only one life. Not anything you can do. There's only one life that's actually going to last. One real life. And that's only the life that I can give you. Not any part of life that you can build for yourself. And so when I think about this, there's a question that always comes to mind, and I have to admit, it's not a fun question. It's not a comfortable question. What about your life? What about my life just shouts new? Because see, sometimes I'm afraid that we look a little bit too normal. We look a little bit too natural. In Ephesians 4, starting in verse 17, in the little heading in, in my Bible here, it says, Instructions for Christian Living. Pretty broad topic there, but there's something very specific about these first few verses that I think we need to listen to. So Paul says to the church in Ephesus, So I tell you this, and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they're full of greed." Might have had a moment where they thought, well, wait a minute, some of my pagan neighbors, well, they're not all bad, are they? I mean, I've got this friend down the road, and no, he doesn't have this new life in Christ, but he's kind, he's a good neighbor to me. He treats his family well, he he does his job well. Surely I don't need to be that different from him, do I? But I think one of the things that that Paul here and and God would have us to to warn ourselves against, and, and remember that no matter how good we may feel about ourselves, no matter what good things we may do, we can still hold on so tightly to an old self that maybe can be good for a season, maybe has the appearance of some holiness But ultimately, if it isn't coming from God, if it's coming from ourselves, it's corruptible, it's temporary, it's all going to fade away. We need the life that only he can give. So I ask myself again, what in my life just screams new? What is it that's in my life right now? What's in your life that simply wouldn't be possible without Jesus? Or could your life and the way that you live it, the way you treat others, the way you comport yourself from day to day, could someone look at you and say, oh, well, that's a, that's, a, that's a good person. Just like another good person that they may know that doesn't have the life of Christ within them. If we find ourselves having difficulty with that question, what about my life was really impossible if it were not for a new life within me? If we have difficulty with that question, maybe we've held so tightly to the old life, or at least some parts of the old life, that we failed to fully embrace the new. Or maybe we've just become so accustomed to what this new life looks like, that maybe we've lost a little of that sense of wonder and amazement for what God's doing in this new life that He's given us through His Son. But either way, I think we need to pay attention. We need to remember that our lives that we live from day to day shouldn't look normal. They shouldn't be our own lives. There should be, and like I said, I was a, you know, I heard this term earlier this week, a, a Buick, um, brought up in church kid. Um, I think that's all the right letters there. Everything, you know, I, I was, I've been going to church my whole life. You know, I've been taught the, the good things I'm supposed to do. And I have to admit, there are a lot of times when it's really a little hard for me to see the distinction between who I was and who I am because I felt like I was always at least kind of good along the way. And so especially for those of us who feel like we've, we've done pretty good in our lives, that we haven't had just a whole lot of struggles, it can be even harder for us to not pay attention to what God is really trying to offer us. And it can be really easy for us to start settling for something a little bit less because we thought what we had was good enough. But Jesus says, once again, back in the passage we started with, that those who hear his word, believes him who sent him, will have eternal life, will not be judged, but is crossed over from death to life. The difference really is that huge. If we'll take the time to pay attention and really see what God has to offer. So is your life new today? Have you embraced a new life that is so fundamentally different than the life you had without Jesus that it simply can't be explained in any other way? If you see that possibility, you see that life set before him and you want to take advantage of it and you feel like you haven't yet, if you haven't entered into God's kingdom yet, we can help you do that today. We can, if you'd like to know more about how that takes place, we'd love to help you with it. Or if just somewhere along the way you've forgotten about the wonder and the beauty and the majesty of what God is trying to do even in your life. And you'd like the support and the prayers of this church so that you can get back onto that road of living a life that is so remarkably different than life without Christ. That people can't help but notice that there's something new about you. If there's anything we can help you do this morning, please come and let us know while we stand, while we sing.